Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are bringing you a recent talk from Alistair Roberts on how to read the Bible. This was the first of two talks that he recently delivered at our regional course in the Twin Cities. Here, he's going to start by having the attendants work through Genesis chapter 38, and he'll make some observations about that passage. He'll talk about the strangeness of Scripture and what obstacles may lay before us as we read the text. He'll also talk about the importance of hearing the Word of God. This is a very well-done talk from Alistair Roberts, and it ends with a helpful Q&A as well. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and as always, we want to thank you for listening. And here is Alistair Roberts teaching at one of our recent regional courses on how to read the Bible. Welcome, Alistair. He's going to go through some really great material with us. Thank you. Going to start off with an exercise. If you have a Bible to hand, or within a group of about four, if you can split up, I would like you to look at the book of Genesis and chapter 38. Now, we're going to be spending some time looking through Scripture and thinking about how we read Scripture well. So I'm going to throw you in at the deep end here. Genesis chapter 38 is not the easiest chapter of Scripture to read and understand. But I want you to get into a group of about four and to think about the following questions. What things does the chapter remind you of? Details within it. Why is the passage there? What does it communicate within its context? What details within the chapter are surprising? Things that you might not expect to be recorded for us. Who are the characters involved and what parts do they play? What structural elements of the narrative are observable? And was there anything else that you noticed during the exercise? So if you can split into a group of about four, look through the chapter, and then we'll reconvene in about 10 minutes' time. Did anyone notice any particular details in the story that were interesting and surprising? Anyone have any suggestions? God's immediate justice. Any other details or aspects of the story? Yes, Judah's friend Hira. What's he doing there? What? He seems to be a witness to everything that's going on. But what part does he play beyond that? I mean, why is he mentioned? It's an interesting question to ask. The law of the lever is assumed, but not really given as a license. Yes, the law of the leveret. The leveret marriage, where raising up seed for the dead brother, that's assumed, but we don't have the law later on, until later on. Any other details? Yep. Can you think of a previous character within the story of Genesis who married Canaanite women? Esau. Any other things that you noticed? Yep. Jacob and Esau and the twins. Any other details that you might have noticed? Judah's marriage is uh, talked of in very matter-of-fact terms. It uh, took, a while, took a woman and went into her rather than four, eight verses later that it's talked about as a marriage. Yes. 
viewed as marriage in the way that it's spoken of. It's interesting, thinking on that front, how much of a time span is covered by the original, the earlier verses of the chapter. This is 30, 40 years that we're speaking about here. And we have this narrative that's going straight from Joseph going down into Egypt, and then you have the story of Potiphar and the events with Potiphar's wife straight afterwards. Then you have this story in the middle that seems a bit incongruous in its situation. Why do you think the story is there? Any thoughts on that question? It seems to interrupt the flow of the narrative, doesn't it? Why might it be placed here? It's a contrast between Joseph and Judah. Joseph's obedience, Judah's unfaithfulness. Contrast between Joseph and Judah. Any thoughts on how we could fill out that contrast a bit further? Going into a prostitute versus Potiphar's wife and avoiding sexual immorality? Yep. The contrast between the scene with Potiphar's wife and the scene with Judah and Tamar. That's an immediate contrast. What other contrasts can we see? Or themes that continue through both of those narratives? Yes. The signet cord and staff of Judah and the robe in the Joseph story. And evidence being placed before someone who's judging. We have that in both of those stories. But we also, we have it in chapter 38 and we have it in chapter 39. We also have something like that in chapter 37. The garment, the bloodied garment that is given to Jacob. Any more thoughts on why it might be in its position? Filling out what we've already been mentioning. Yes. Judah took counsel with himself and his friend, but Joseph took counsel with the Lord. When we look through the book of Genesis, this is one thing that we'll see on a number of occasions, that there are what have been called diptychs, two characters or two sets of events placed alongside each other, and you can see the contrast between them. And as you read the two stories alongside each other, or the two characters alongside each other, you come to a deeper understanding of the meaning of what's taking place. Think of the examples of Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, Sarah and Hagar, or Abraham and Lot. All of these are examples of diptychs. And then we have Judah and Joseph. Any other thoughts on aspects of this story structurally that help to understand why it's in its position? It does. When we read Matthew 1, we have a list of four women mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. That's interesting, looking at this chapter, there are slight hints of all of them. When you think about the wife of Judah, she is the daughter of Shua. In this book of First Chronicles, chapter 3, Bathsheba is called the daughter of, it's called Bathsheba. So there's a relationship between the two, perhaps. When we think about the character of Rahab, there's a scarlet cord. There's a scarlet cord at the end here. Tamar is mentioned. And we have the story of Ruth as well. And Ruth involves leveret marriage. So there are these 
elements within the story that may remind you of other stories. Can you think of other stories within the story of Christ, within the story of the Old Testament, that this story has similarities to? Joseph being sold. Now, there, we've already mentioned the bringing forward of evidence. We could think about the kid as well. There's a kid within this story. The kid that has to be brought to Tamar as payment. Now, he doesn't have payment to hand. There's a lost kid. There's not a kid there. They've used a kid to disguise the death of Joseph. And now there's another kid mentioned in the story. Go back through the story further and think about the story of Jacob and the blessing of Isaac. There is another story there involving goats and deception, or goats and coats and garments and evidence and these sorts of things. These are themes that help us to see that maybe there are connections between these stories. Maybe if we follow these, trace out these connections, we might discover a deeper message within this text. Something that is discerned from the text itself, not something we impose upon it. We have to look closely and be attentive. Any other things that you notice, even in just doing the exercise? This is a very strange chapter of Scripture. and we're not, I'm not going to explain it this evening, but if you're interested, I can point you to some things that we'll discuss it further. But anything you noticed in just doing the exercise? The covenant line is in peril. Joseph is in, in slavery. He's the faithful one, but it seems like it's falling apart with the rest of freedom. Yes. Just think about the narrative position that we're brought to here. Not just in the individual story of Judah, but in the broader narrative. Jacob is going down to his grave in mourning for his last son, Joseph. Joseph has gone down to Egypt. Who knows where he's going to end up? Judah leaves the rest of his brothers. Perhaps his brothers, he was involved in the plot to sell Joseph into Egypt, and he was the one that really led them in that. Now maybe they've turned away from him. The plot has gone awry, and they thought that their father would get over things and that he would favor the line of Leah over the line of Rachel, but no, it hasn't worked out. And so Judah goes down, and all these years while away, 30, 40 years, however many years are taken, he goes down, he marries a woman, and then has all these children, and then all this failure to raise up seed for Ur, and Sheila comes of age, he's still not married to Tamar, and then his wife dies, and then he goes out after he's finished mourning, and then has relations with Tamar. And then when you think about what happens with Tamar, what does he give to Tamar? He gives these symbols of his very identity. This is his sign of his rule, his staff. It's like giving your credit card and your passport. It's something very significant. It's the sign of his authority, his rule, his destiny as the chief tribe, the kingly tribe of Israel. And so this is a pretty low ebb that we see the house of Israel at within this chapter. And all this time has wasted away, and then suddenly, as he's presented with that evidence, he repents and he realizes what, realizes what he has done. And he confesses. Now, he doesn't have to confess. He could cover it up. But when he confesses, he is shocked, as it were, to his senses again. He's given his identity back as a sheer act of grace. If you think about this story then, you can see the broader narrative that there is a turning point here. This is a deep, dark point of the story of Israel. 
There are many other details that we could note about this story, but I'm not going to focus upon the story of Judah and Tamar here. What I want to do is get you to think about the strangeness of Scripture. Scripture is a very odd book. If you were going to write a book about God and about all the things that are involved in having a relationship with God and being God's people, you would not write a story like this within it, would you? I certainly wouldn't. And yet, this is the sort of material that we find throughout the Old Testament and the New. So there's something here to be discovered. If we pay attention, and this is a running theme that I'm going to be exploring over the next couple of days, if we pay attention, we may notice the reasons why the story is told in this way. One story I've found very amusing in the past is the story of Marco Polo going to the East. And going to the East, he knew that he was going to encounter weird and strange foreign beasts. Going to the edge of the world, you expect to meet strange animals. He expected, among other things, to see a unicorn. And of course, he encountered a unicorn. But yet, the unicorn was not as the books had told him that it would be. It was dark rather than white. It was, had a stubby horn rather than a, a long, graceful horn. It had a hide that was really thick and big feet like an elephant rather than graceful feet like a horse. Of course, he saw the rhinoceros, but he did not have the categories within which to understand and to speak about what he was seeing. His background books had told him to expect a certain sort of thing, and he had brought all those expectations to the reality, and it made it impossible for him to see what was right in front of him. And that can often be how we find scripture. We have all these expectations that we bring to the text, the expectations that we grew up with, perhaps in our families, in our Sunday school, in all the devotional literature that we read, in the promised verses that we were taught. And then we come to the scripture and it's like that rhinoceros that we don't have the categories for. And so maybe we need to think about what categories could we develop that are more fitting to this strange book that God has given us. We need to consider, for instance, the strangeness of Scripture as a book that is focused upon particular things. Now, if we were telling the story of Scripture, we probably, first of all, wouldn't be telling a story. We would be talking about abstract principles of salvation, abstract principles of divine identity and theology and all these sorts of things. But yet, Scripture talks about things like sweat and blood and nocturnal emissions and sacrificial systems and talks about how you divide a particular animal and what part you put upon the altar, who handles which part. It talks about particular places. It talks like about places like Kezib here. That, I mean, why mention that? Strange, I don't have a clue. But if you have a clue, please talk to me afterwards because I'd love to know. It talks about characters like Hira the Adolamite who plays this small part in the story of scripture and never appears on its pages again, but yet he's there for some reason. It has a whole host of other particular details that seem to confound our expectations of what a book of scripture should be. And yet, if we pay attention, I think we can gain a deeper understanding of what God is telling us about himself through this weird and strange book. There is an imperative then upon paying attention of hearing what the text is, 
rather than what we are expecting it to be or what we want it to be. All of these things can be obstacles between us and the text that we are encountering. When you come to the text with a host of prior expectations and demands and um, impositions, it's very hard to hear what the text is actually saying to you. Our impatience can be an obstacle. You may have found, even in that exercise of just looking through Genesis chapter 38, as you started to pay attention, certain things emerged from the text that maybe you did not notice when you first read through it. There is a practice of attention that we need to learn. That practice of attention can be guided to some extent by questions like the ones that I gave you at the outset. But much of attention is something that's learned. As we spend a lot of time in Scripture, as we read it again and again, one practice I've found very helpful for my own reading is reading a biblical text maybe six, seven times over and just hearing it, trying to put my questions away for the time being and just hearing what questions emerge from the text itself. The text's questions in the story of Judah and Tamar are not necessarily the questions that you will first bring to it. As you spend more time with it, you may be asking questions like, why the scarlet cord? Why Hira the Adolamite? Why these particular symbols of, that Judah gives? Why the mention of, what does, what's Tamar's part within the story? Why is this story one that reminds me of so many other stories in the Old Testament? So for instance, if you read the story of David and his family, there is another Tamar in that story, Tamar with a multicolored coat, and there's a story at the time of sheep shearing, and there's all these different details that remind you of the story of Judah and Tamar and Joseph. Why is that? Again, unless we're paying attention to the broader world of Scripture, we won't have those questions. And so attention is something that arises from patience with the particular text, attention to the wider body of Scripture, and then bringing all those things to bear. We also need to consider, in talking about the strangeness of the Bible and the narratives that we find within it, the Bible is also a strange artifact in many ways. Now, when we think about the Bible, when I talk about the Bible, you tend to think about this, I'm sure. It's what I think about. It's a mass-produced, privately-owned, printed-bound text where all the books of the Bible are held between two covers and they're held in a particular order, and there's navigational tools, and there's chapters, and there's verses, and there's cross-references, and there's page numbers, and all these other things that help us navigate the text. Most people who have read the Bible in the past or encountered biblical text have not encountered it in a form like this. This is a very modern form of the biblical text. When most people read the Bible in the past, they did not read it silently. They did not read it privately. It was read aloud. They heard it. When we read through the Bible, I think many of you, if you're anything like me, you will instinctively translate in your head the statements when it talks about hearing the word of the Lord, you'll translate that to reading the word of the Lord because that's the way that you're used to encountering the Bible. That's the way I'm used to encountering the Bible. We don't usually hear the word of the Lord because we're used to reading privately and silently. The history of the Bible is a very interesting one. If you went back before the development of the printing press, Bibles were produced in a very laborious manner. 
Even when you think about the printed Bible, the early printed Bibles were expensive to produce. Now, I want to ask you a question and see what guesses I get. How many calf skins do you think that it took to make a single Gutenberg Bible when they were produced on vellum? Give a guess. Not quite a thousand. <laughs> More than 30. More than 100. Not 660. <laughs> what are 666? Um, <laughs> less than 600. About 180 calf skins. If you're making it with sheepskin, it would take 300. Now, in the northeast of England, where I've lived for the last few years, we have great history of Bible and book production more generally. We have a great history of book production because we have a lot of rain. When you have a lot of rain, you have healthy sheep. When you have healthy sheep, you have skins that won't tear when you're stretching them. And you have a whole environment that leads to a culture of book production. There is a lot that needs to be involved in the process of producing the inks, of creating a community of scholars and scribes who are writing these texts, and a genealogy of texts where one text follows on from another as it's copied out. Texts are related to communities as well. When you're not mass-producing texts, texts are produced for a specific community. And these texts would often be very much bound up with the life of the church. When we think about the modern Bible, how do we bind all the books together? Quite literally, in the binding of the book. Now, you did not have Bibles with all the books between two covers in the early church. There were a few pandects that developed later on, pandects being um, collections of all the books of the Bible. And even the ones that we have are often within a few volumes rather than just one volume. What you had were separate volumes. What was the binding then? The binding, in many ways, was the life and the liturgy of the church. These were the books that belonged within the life and the worship and the study and the meditation of the people of God. The church bound these texts together. The church was also the context where the text was being handed on and produced. It was the context where you encountered the text as it was read aloud. Most of us in um, few, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, wouldn't have been able to read. It's a modern privilege that we have that we all can read and have our personal Bibles that we can study for ourselves. The cost, as you can imagine, of a Bible was prohibitive for most people. If you're thinking about how much it costs to make a Bible with 180 calfskins, the process of a trained scribe writing everything out by hand from a specific copy, and all the training that is involved within that, and all the culture that is involved in producing such scribes, all the work that is involved in producing the inks and stretching out the vellum, all these things would make the book cost more than most houses. It would be an expensive thing to have. And these books, when we think about it, Early libraries did not have many books in them. In the northeast of England, we have the library, we have um, the Venerable Bede used to work in the northeast of England. They had a great library at Jarrow, and this was in the 8th and 9th centuries. And during that period, he had about 200 volumes in his library. That was a huge library. 
bigger than either the library of Oxford or Cambridge in the year 1400. So we can think about the modern Bible and the modern library as something that is very modern. This is something that's only been around for less than 500 years. Even when we think about Gutenberg and the printing press, that did not involve mass production. He was producing under 200 Bibles. When we think about the modern Bible, there will be thousands upon thousands of copies of Bibles like this printed. It's a very different situation, particularly after the development of the steam printing press. And this series of developments changed the way that we engage with the Bible. Think again about chapters and verses. We didn't have chapters until the beginning of the 13th century with Archbishop Stephen Langton. Robert Estienne developed verses in the 1550s and 1560s. These are fairly late developments. Now, can you imagine reading a Bible without chapters and verses? Many of you nowadays may have a reader's Bible which does not have chapters and verses. It could be like the difference between reading a map where you can point out a specific spot on the map with a place name or with some detail from F6 on the map, or maybe you can give a GPS coordinate on your computer. Whatever it is, you can go straight to that spot. But yet, when you're reading through Scripture and you do not have chapters and verses, often it can be more like following an itinerary, where you have to give directions and turn right at the post office or go um, straight on until you have passed three of the um, three traffic light, sets of traffic lights, and then at the end, when you reach the intersection, turn right. That's how we give people directions in, our, in an itinerary. And in scripture, it can often be like that. When we're reading it, not as a map, not, without, not with chapters and verses, but with a sense of how the story is developing. Our way of reading the Bible, shaped by chapters and verses, can often lead to little details being taken out of the text. So we talk about proof texts, that you take one particular detail, one particular verse, and that proves a doctrine. Or, on the other hand, it can be something that is a promise text. And many of those promise texts are very powerful. Yet, when abstracted from their context, you miss a lot of their meaning. It would be hard also to abstract promise texts from the story of Judah and Tamar and other things like that. They do not invite them that sort of reading. They are stories that are best understood by drawing them into the wider context, understanding why this is in the middle of the story of Joseph. If you're reading that story just by itself, you may miss the flow of the narrative. N.T. Wright has talked about the fact that reading the Bible, or reading Paul in particular, can often be like riding a bicycle. If you go too slowly, you might fall off. And when we're reading the Bible, we need to think about the broader spans that are covered. When you're reading the story of Genesis, for instance, there are themes that run throughout the story of that book. Same thing with things like 1 Samuel. Read through the Gospels. There are patterns within these stories that you won't notice if you're reading very slowly. Other things to notice is the movement from a text that's written for the eye, uh, for the ear, to a text that's written for the eye. Someone has spoken about this as the movement from the vocodex to the coindex. If you went back to the 10th century and you looked at the continent and the way that biblical texts were written, you would find that they did not have spaces between their words. 
all the Latin text was written out and there was no space between their words. Why wasn't there a space between their words? In part because the text was not written in order to be read quickly. It was not written even in order to be read silently. Augustine talks about the experience of seeing Ambrose reading silently and thinking it's a very strange thing, very odd to see someone reading a text silently. That's not how people usually read. People would usually sub-vocalize the text, or they would be reading it out loud, often to a group of people. Now, we can often read our ways of reading back into the text. So, for instance, in Acts 17, you read about the Bereans. The way the Bereans were fair-minded, they were people who people who studied the scriptures to see whether what Paul said was true. Now, what do you think that involves? Do you think they all went back to their own homes and took the Bible down off the shelf and read it, read it privately and explored and checked the cross-references and looked through other details like that? Probably not. Most likely, they gathered together in a group of people and asked questions and interrogated as a group of people reading the text together, and a trained scribe exploring the passages that were mentioned in the context of the conversation. And that's a way of reading that we don't necessarily do that much. But it's the form of reading that would come very naturally to an early Christian community, for instance, or a synagogue community. The development from the vocodex, the text that's written in order to be read aloud and to be heard primarily, to the text that's written for the eye and for scholarly study is one that occurred even before the printing press. If you look at medieval scriptoria and the development of the text within those contexts, increasingly you see a movement from a text that's written for the ear to a text that's written for the eye that enables you to move back and to and fro between passages quite easily. And you can have things like um, chapters and verses are helpful for that, and also page numbers enable you to find your place and move from one place to another very quickly. And also the navigational tools on the side, glosses, other things like that, that help you to engage with the text as a scholar. Now, if someone asked you what is a Shakespearean play, what would you tell them in response? Would you pull down Hamlet off the shelf, a dog-eared copy that maybe you studied in your high school English class, and say, this is a Shakespearean play? Or would you point them to the stage and say, that is a Shakespearean play? In many ways, scripture invites similar questions. Where is the scripture primarily encountered? Is it encountered in the private reading of the text, abstracted from other people, in the private closet and reading these texts and studying in personal devotions? Or is it primarily encountered in the gathering of God's people as the text is read aloud and explored as the people of God who have the word of God present and dwelling in their midst? These are the sorts of questions that we need to consider. The church, in many ways, is the binding of the Bible. The church is the place where the Bible really finds its primary home, like the stage is the primary home for a Shakespearean play. Now, I am certainly very grateful to have a personal Bible. I hope you are too, and I hope you spend a lot of time studying it. But in many respects, that's similar to studying a Shakespearean play, the script of it, and getting to know it. It enhances your understanding of the performance and your ability to perform the text, but it should not substitute for that. 
And when we're reading the text, we need to understand that its primary home is within the life and the worship of the people of God. A gathering together of the community of God's people where we hear God's word being addressed to us. It's one of the reasons why we have explored the sort of liturgy that we've explored earlier this evening. A liturgy that's designed to bring text to life. So we sing the Nunc Dimittis, the Song of Simeon. And it enables us to enter into the world of the text, that we voice those words, we voice the psalm. We don't just read the psalm silently to ourselves. We sing the psalm, we pray the psalm. We take the words of scripture and we perform them within the life of the liturgy. When you're reading the Bible, it can be helpful to think not just about the contents, but about the ordering as well. The Bible is a book that has a structure to it. Now, if you look at your Bible, it probably has 66 books in it. And those books are not just put in a random order. There's a sort of pattern and a rationale to the way that they are given to us. And that ordering has changed over time. If you think about the Hebrew ordering of the text, it would be different. And there are various suggestions that are given. When we think about the ordering of the text, it can help us to better understand the contents. And I want to look at some of the ways in which the content and the ordering of the text go together, how they can illumine each other. The ordering of the Old Testament is given in the ordering of law, prophets, and writings within the Hebrew scriptures. If you read the book of Matthew, you'll see it begins with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, etc. Now that is a callback to the story of the book of Genesis. We have that expression, the book of the genealogy of, in Genesis. And that key expression is found at various points. Now if we go to the very end of the book of Matthew, you'll see the Great Commission. And the Great Commission reads as follows. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, that reminds you, or should remind you, of a text in the Old Testament. Now, there are a number of texts it might remind you of. It might remind you of some texts in Joshua chapter 1. But one of the main texts it should remind us of is the very last verse in the book of Second Chronicles, which is the final book of the Old Testament according to the Hebrew ordering. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So there's an order to this book. And the ordering is expressed within that pattern that we see within Matthew. As you read through the book of Matthew, you'll see a lot of other callbacks to the story of Genesis, the story of Exodus, to the story of the whole Old Testament as you go through. So you think about, there's a character who's the son of Jacob called Joseph, who has dreams and saves his people by bringing them down to Egypt. It's a story of Genesis, but it's also the story of Joseph, the father of Christ. If we think about the story of chapter 2 of Matthew, out of Egypt I have called my son. It's the story of the Exodus. It's also the story of Christ. 
Christ on a mountain, speaking about the law and God's word. It's the story of the story of the Pentateuch and Moses. It's also the story of Christ. And as we go through, we can see those sorts of patterns. The ordering of law, prophets, and writings that we see within the Old Testament, according to the Hebrew ordering, is the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. The prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the Book of the Twelve. And when you think about the Book of the Prophets that um, Stephen mentions in his sermon, the Book of the Prophets is 12 prophets joined together in a single text. So Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, John, Mark, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All of those books in a single text. And when we read the Old Testament, we can think about the prophets and including those three key texts, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the book of the Twelve. The writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Now, Joram Pazzoni, the Jewish scholar, has argued that we should think in terms of biblical history. And so the division should be biblical history, Genesis to Kings, with Deuteronomy at the heart. So you have the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, or you don't have Chronicles in that particular ordering. Then you have the prophets with the three key texts of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and other texts around them. And then the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job, and accompanying texts. Now we generally order things from Genesis to Malachi, and there's a basic chronological ordering at play there, but there are other things that we will generally use to order the texts. So we think about genre, we think about history, the historical texts come first. Then we think about poetry or wisdom. Things like Job or Ecclesiastes fall into the category of wisdom or poetry. We might think about the major prophets and the minor prophets. And so we have history, or maybe law, law and then history. There are different ways of dividing it. Poetry or wisdom, major prophets, minor prophets. And that ordering by chronology is probably one of the things that we're most familiar with when we read through the text. We're thinking primarily in terms of the sequence of these events as we go through. There are other ways of ordering these texts that have been suggested. Now, one of the ways I've found very helpful is James Jordan's suggestion that we think in terms of priest, king, and prophet. Now, if you think about the priest, the king, and the prophet, those are three different offices that correspond to a number of different things. So what is the priest? The priest is the household servant of the palace of God, the temple. The household servant who runs things, who represents his master to the guests that are invited into the palace, invited to eat, to enter into the presence of the king, and they run the affairs of the house. They also represent their, their master to the people. They keep the house of Israel clean, as it were, and so they maintain the holiness of the people. The king is the one who's responsible for the land. He rules with God, under God, and he maintains the boundaries of the land and relates to the surrounding nations. What is the prophet? The prophet is someone who participates in the divine council, and so he speaks with God, and he represents the people to God in the, in the council, 
where the angels and others are represented, and then he represents the council to the people. So he speaks on God's behalf to the people and on the people's behalf to God. Prophet, priest, or king, priest, king, and prophet. As you look through the body of the biblical material, you'll notice that there are connections between those three offices and different bodies of material. So the priest is connected with the law. And the law is very much material. It's do this, don't do that. It's very clear instructions that present you with key guidelines. Now you can think about that as a certain stage of childhood. You have kids, you probably raise them, giving them very clear instructions. Things that they are to do and not to do. You don't give them a lot of latitude and leaving things up to their own prudence because they haven't yet developed prudence at that point. Rather, you give them clear instructions, black and white. And out of that, they can think and develop the prudence in time as they gain maturity. The law is very much, do this, don't do that. It's very much focused on the life of the temple and the sanctuary. It's something that's concerned with the sacrifices of Israel and other things like that. It presents the most basic pattern for Israel's life. It presents the spring, as it were, out of which other things arise. Now, if you think about the king, what is the king connected with? Not so much the law as wisdom. The king is connected with wisdom and poetry. The king writes songs, the Psalms, the Song of Solomon. He writes wisdom, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. These are all texts that involve a different sort of engagement with God's truth and instruction. Whereas the law is do this, don't do that, black and white, wisdom literature is a different sort of thing. There's a time for this, there's a time for that. It's not black or white, it's knowing the time for things. It's being able to discern things where there is not a black or white situation. How do you deal with that difficult case of judgment when this one child is brought towards you by the two mothers? How do you deal with that case? It takes wisdom. If you think about the Proverbs, the Proverbs are also, as it were, light that can be brought to bear upon specific, particular situations. It's the ability to read a specific situation and know how to bring judgment to bear upon it. Now, wisdom is very much connected with judgment. God sees and he judges. God sees that what he has created is good and he declares that it is good. He declares his approbation. He judges concerning it. We can think about the knowledge of good and evil. And that's connected with Solomon. Solomon has a dream, and he asks for wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil, to rule God's people. Wisdom is connected with the knowledge of good and evil. Now, we see that also in the story of David. David is spoken of as like the angel of the Lord, knowing good and evil. He's someone who can bring judgment to bear upon situations where things are not clear. Now, in seeking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as it were, Adam and Eve were jumping the gun. They were snatching at the throne before they were ready for it, before they had learnt the basics, before they had learnt the law, before they had been trained by God and learned to rule under him. They wanted to rule against him. They thought that God was taking, withholding from them rather than recognizing that he was a good God who wanted them to gain rule in time. Now, what do we have beyond wisdom? 
we have the word of the prophets. Now the prophet is someone who participates in the council chamber of God. He is someone who is involved in scenes like Isaiah 6, where we see Isaiah in the presence of God, in the presence of the seraphim, in the presence of the deliberations of the divine council. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Here I am, send me. That's the situation that the prophet finds himself within, delivering the word of God to the people and delivering the people, representing the people to God within that realm. The prophet is also someone who takes the word of God into himself in a new way. If you read the story of Ezekiel, Ezekiel eats the scroll. And that scroll is something that is God's fiery word within him that prepares him to speak. And to bear that, he represents the word of God as he speaks within the nation. And in the same way, there's a movement there from the very basics, the rudiments of law, do this, don't do that, to the greater insight of wisdom, there's a time for this, a time for that, to the word of the prophet, the word of the prophet who has taken the word into themselves and now bears that witness from out of themselves. Well, we can think about this in terms of any form of human development. If you're learning a musical instrument, you start off with the law. Do this, don't do that. Practice these scales again and again and again and again until you're so tired of them and everyone else in your house is so tired of them. But maybe you know the law of the instrument. And as you learn the law of the instrument, then you'll learn what things go together well. You'll learn what to play after a particular piece of music. You'll learn larger, more complex pieces of music. And you'll, in a certain time, be able to so incorporate music within yourself that you'll be able to creatively produce it, to compose. And in many ways, that's the movement from priest to king to prophet. The priest is someone who's learning the scale, who's presenting you with the scales, the basic law of the instrument. The king is someone who has a greater mastery of the instrument and knows how to improvise a bit and speak to a situation where he does not have a direct word to. And then the prophet is someone who can compose faithfully, compose things that are beautiful and good that work out of the reality of the musical instrument. And so there's a movement there that I think is patterned in Scripture itself and within our lives. As we develop in our understanding of Scripture, we should be moving through these stages. And at every stage, we'll find ourselves growing in a relationship with Scripture. So what I hope that you gain, among other things, is a sense of Scripture, not just as this entity outside of you that you need to think of um, strategies for interpreting it as part of what we're doing, I want us to think about ways in which Scripture becomes part of us, that we become not just people who look and read Scripture, but people who think scripturally, that Scripture has become part of our DNA. And that's a challenge, but it's part of the movement into a more prophetic way of engaging with the text. Now, the Old and New Testament are perhaps the first thing that you notice when you think about the ordering of the Bible. The Bible is divided into two key halves, not exact halves, but two texts that are divided from each other by this page in the middle of your Bible. And as you look at that division, it's hard to know what to do with that. 
First of all, many Christians ignore the Old Testament. They don't know what to do with it. They think that's passe. Maybe it's the making of, as it were, of the feature film. But they're not exactly sure how we should understand this text. It's strange and it has these obscure and weird rituals. Maybe it has some things that we can salvage from the wreckage. But there's not a whole lot that we can do with it. Maybe it belongs to a, a previous dispensation. And we've arrived at a new dispensation and we can put that behind us and there's nothing more to learn from it. I mean, it's certainly a relief as you go through your Bible study program and you hit the big obstacle of Leviticus to know that it doesn't really matter that much. <laughs> but, sorry, I'm here to disappoint you. The Old Testament really is important. But the Old Testament is one that we have dangers on both sides. There's the danger, first of all, of assimilating the Old Testament and losing sight of its difference and its own integrity. So when we're reading the Old Testament, it's very easy to read that text and to so thoroughly Christianize it and spiritualize it that we do not hear it on its own terms. And I want us to hear it on its own terms. And when you hear it on its own terms, there will be strange and odd things about it, like the story of Judah and Tamar, which probably has left you with a whole lot of questions and weird um, issues within your head that you haven't yet resolved. Join the club. But it is a difficult thing to understand the Old Testament. But it's worthwhile, I believe. And I believe as we understand that the text is not something to be just assimilated to our ways of viewing the Scripture in the New Testament, to be domesticated. There's something strange about the Old Testament. But yet that strangeness will ultimately reveal something about Christ. There's the other danger of detaching the Old Testament from its telos, from its end, and invalidating its uses in the New Testament. And it's re the reading of the text as Christian scripture. When we're reading the story of Judah and Tamar, if we're just reading that as the story of a story of Hebrew scripture, a story of the Jews, a story of the family of Abraham and the people of Israel, if that's all that we're reading it has, we're missing much of the point. The story of Judah and Tamar is Christian scripture. It's written for our edification. It's written for our learning. And that struggle to understand it is a worthwhile one because I believe, ultimately, it yields insight. It yields insight not just into the meaning of that text within its original context in the Old Testament, but an understanding that ultimately it leads us to Christ. So there's a challenge of relating the Old and the New Testament. The importance of not collapsing the Old Testament and New Testament into each other involves retaining a space between the immediate sense of the Old Testament and the New Testament's hearing of it. And there are points that are crucially important for thinking about how we read the Bible typologically, for instance. Do we read the Bible typologically in a way that faces the surface meaning of the text, the literal meaning of the text, or are we seeing that literal meaning of the text as something that leads us into the deeper understanding of how it leads to Christ? We need to think about the correspondence between the Old and New Testament as two witnesses to Christ, two witnesses that maybe act in different ways. If you were a spy, perhaps, that was given half of a five, well, five-pound note, if you're in the UK, and you divided it between two people, and you didn't know each other, but you knew that each person had half of this note. 
you'd get together and meet in the marketplace perhaps and you would just present your half and they'd present their half and there would be an epiphany that you know that you belong to each other. You're supposed to be meeting up. And in the same way, the meeting together of Old and New Testament leads to light on both sides. The Old Testament sheds light upon the New and the New Testament sheds light upon the Old. The two texts belong together. And yet they belong together in a way that there's a sort of separation between them. There's a distinction between them. It's like the difference between man and wife in Genesis chapter 2, that the two become one flesh, but yet they become one flesh in terms of a division that exists. And that division is not collapse. Eve is not assimilated into Adam again. That division is maintained. And yet that division leads to new life and fruitfulness. In the same way, the division between Old and New Testament is one that must be retained, but yet retained in a way that leads to illumination. Now this contrasts with the way that, for instance, the Quran treats previous revelation, where previous revelation is assimilated into this great final revelation. In Scripture, it does not work that way. In Scripture, we retain the Old Testament, not as the Scripture emeritus, Scripture that has resigned and and is just retired and has an honorary status within the life of the church, but scripture that is still scripture, but speaks in a different way to us. And as we read the two alongside each other, we'll understand more fully what God has to teach us. Working into the New Testament then, we've thought about the ordering of the Old Testament. What do we find within the New Testament? Well, first of all, you find a puzzle. Why do we have four books telling the same story, or something similar to the same story? It seems rather odd. It seems superfluous. Why is God repeating himself? And I hope over the course of the next um, few sessions, we'll see maybe why God isn't just repeating himself, and why he is telling the same story in a number of different ways or different occasions. There are significant similarities, yet some important differences between the Gospels. Now, we talk about the Gospels in terms of the Synoptic Gospels and John. The Synoptic Gospels are the three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which view the events of Christ's ministry and his death and resurrection from a very similar perspective. They substantially share material. And so as you read through them, you'll often struggle to remember in which Gospel did I read that particular account because they're very similar, and yet there are differences. So if you're reading the story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness, you will find that story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke in each of the Synoptic Gospels. It isn't in John. And John has a lot of material that differs from the other Gospels. It's surprising in that way. And we need to think about why it differs, where it differs, and where it doesn't differ, what commonalities exist. John's Gospel, for instance, is a lot more focused upon Jerusalem. It's a lot more focused upon signs, key, as it were, icons of what it, literary icons of what it means, of what Christ has done. So we see, for instance, the healing of the man at the sheep pool, and we're told details about him. He's been there for 38 years, or he's been in that condition for 38 years. Why mention 38 years? Again, pay attention to the details. 38 years is how long Israel wandered in the wilderness after their unfaithfulness and failure to enter into the land. There's something going on there. They're waiting for the water to be troubled so that he can enter into the water. He cannot enter into the city 
until he's brought over. And then Jesus, Joshua, heals him and brings him in. There's something going on there that helps us to see who Christ is. Likewise, there are events such as the story of um, John 21, where Jesus meets with his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And there are 153 fish that are caught. Why 153? Why did they lay out all these fish and count them diligently so that the gospel writers, would, gospel readers would know exactly how many fish there were? Why do we need to know that detail? Well, there is a reason why we need to know that detail. I won't go into that right now, but if some, anyone wants to talk about that afterwards, I'll be very happy to. The gospels speak in different ways, and so there are certain icons, as it were, literary icons, portraits of Christ that symbolically present us with an understanding of who Christ is. If we're reading the synoptic Gospels, I mentioned the temptations of Christ. Each one of them tells that story, introduces that story in a slightly different way. And the way that they tell the story is different, and the way that they tell the story is significant to those differences. So Matthew says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And that's language that you may have associated with the story of the Exodus. Jesus is led up, like Israel was led up into the wilderness. Forty years in the wilderness, Israel was tempted and tested. Christ is tested and tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Christ has been compared to Israel out of Egypt, I call my son, earlier on in the story of Matthew. And so Christ is going through the experience of Israel. He's walking where the fathers walked, and he's succeeding where they failed. In the story of Mark, Jesus is cast out by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's the language of exile. It's the language of David being cast out of Saul's court and fleeing and hiding. Now, it's a different set of stories that are brought to mind from the Old Testament. We might think about the way in which David flees from Saul, that Christ is the son of David. Christ is the one who acts as the king within the Gospel of Mark. Now, James Jordan has suggested that that priest-king-prophet pattern is seen in the Synoptic Gospels as well. The priest, the concern with the law, with the first five books of Moses, with the character of Moses, is particularly seen in the book of Matthew. In the book of Mark, Jesus is the king. He's the one who acts with authority. He's the one who does things straightway. And in that book, Jesus is compared to the son of David, these sorts of characters primarily. In, in, in the story of Luke, Jesus is the prophet who must go to Jerusalem because no prophet should die outside of Jerusalem. Now, as you read the book of Luke and you compare it with the book of Matthew and Mark, you'll notice that Jesus' journey to Jerusalem takes 35% of Luke's gospel. That's surprising because Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, it only takes 8%. And in Matthew's Gospel, it only takes 6%. So Luke is placing a lot of emphasis upon Jesus' movement to Jerusalem. And in that movement, he's the traveling prophet. As you follow that story, you'll see him comparing himself to the prophets. So there are different portraits of Christ within the different Gospels. Even when they contain the same events, they recount them differently. We might also think of some of the details that they include and the way that they tell certain, they don't include certain details, perhaps. So if you're reading through the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and John, they mention the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. 
Luke does not mention the sea. Luke mentions the lake of Gennesaret, or the lake of Galilee. Why is that? Why would he have that slight difference? Well, if you read later on in the book of Acts, there is an emphasis upon the sea there. But it's not the Sea of Galilee, it's the Mediterranean Sea. It helps you to understand why he's telling the story in the way that he is. The ordering of the synoptics then makes sense when you think about that movement from different portraits of Christ and how they connect to each other. There are different ways of presenting Christ that help us to see different facets of who Christ is. We also have in the Gospels a book that has a partner. The book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, has a partner in the book of Acts. The former account of Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, he's told him already in the book of Luke many things that he goes on to continue in the book of Acts. He resumes his narrative before the end of the book of Luke. Jesus has not yet ascended, and then he moves on throughout the book. There's a lot of parallels between Luke and Acts. If you read through those books, you probably notice some of these similarities. Rebecca DeNova writes, The baptism of Jesus with water in Luke 3 is paralleled by the community's baptism with the Spirit in Acts 2. Jesus' message is rejected in Nazareth in Luke 4, and the community's message is rejected in Jerusalem in Acts 3-5. to Herod Antipas intends to kill Jesus in Luke 13, while Herod Agrippa attempts to kill Peter in Acts 12. Luke 14 to 18 contains the gospel to the outcasts, and Acts 13 to 20 contains a gospel that includes Gentiles. Chapters 9 to 19 of the gospel contain Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, and Acts 19 to 21 contain Paul's journey to Jerusalem. Both Jesus and Paul suffer a passion and four trials, Luke 20 to 23 and Acts 21 to 26 respectively. The death of Jesus in Luke 23 is paralleled in Acts 27 with Paul's death at sea. In Luke 24, Jesus is resurrected and Paul is resurrected in Acts 28. There are patterns. We see both books begin with emphasis, an emphasis upon the spirit and the temple and prayer. And there's an emphasis there that we see in common also with the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. There are other books within the New Testament, primarily the Pauline Corpus, which takes up a significant body of the rest of the Testament. There's the general or the Catholic epistles, and then there's the Johannine Corpus, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then um, Revelation, which also connects with the Gospel of John. You can see literary connections between those, sometimes very surprising. So if you read in John chapter 4, you read... The woman who's met at the well, again, we thought about the way that there are patterns and stories. Women being met at wells, we have a number of those stories in the Old Testament. The description, Jesus describing the woman's situation. You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. You go to Revelation chapter 17, you read... There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, and the other is, has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. Now that is just weird. Why would you have that sort of parallel between those texts? 
They're written by the same author, and inspired authors, clearly written by the Spirit, but they're written by the same author, and there are some connections there that you can explore and discover further connections in those chapters. How do we read Scripture as revelation? There are various hermeneutical approaches that people take to the text. And one of the problems that we have is reading history, particularly, as something that can be re revelatory. How do you read Scripture as something that reveals things? Now, over the last couple of centuries, there's been a lot of emphasis upon historical criticism, or what's called higher criticism, which tries to reconstruct the background of the world of the text. And there are various family of methods that occur within the context of higher criticism. And these attempt to reconstruct the, the past that the text describes, and also the past that the text belongs to. And so you might think about source criticism, which concerns the sources behind the text. We might think about the documentary hypothesis that we have for Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, JEDP, and those particular sources that compose the rest of the books. Form criticism, which focuses upon the genre of a text, so a parable or a particular sort of miracle or exorcism story, and what is the situation or Sitzenleben that that text has, the situation it would be performed in. So maybe you have a psalm, and the context of that psalm is a coronation psalm. And so you sing it in the context of the king being anointed to his role, and that's how you understand it within form criticism. You might think about redaction criticism. That focuses upon how the supposed editor has treated these different sources and brought them into a composite or composite sources into a single narrative. So what has he left out? Why has he included certain details, maybe accented others, filled certain gaps, these sorts of things? What is the editor doing within the text? Tradition criticism, which pays attention to how texts pass through various stages, such as some sort of oral prehistory. And then you might think about, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, etc., and you read that. It's a sort of, maybe it occurred as a sort of hymn, and you think about the way that it existed before it ended up in the story in the text of Colossians. When we're reading through something like the Lord's Prayer, maybe that went around the early Mathean community for quite some time, and then it ended up within the document of the, um, the Sermon on the Mount. And so you can think about these different arguments as things that fall within the category of historical criticism or higher criticism. Other example would be canonical criticism, which can often be a bit more conservative, someone like Brevet Childs, who places a lot of emphasis upon the completed form of the text. So we don't just have a lot of isolated texts. We have them gathered together in a canon, and they are read within the context of a single body of literature. And so you're not reading the story of Judah and Tamar in abstraction from the story of Samson in Judges chapter 14, or in abstraction from the story of Leviticus chapter 16, where there are parallels with both of the, those stories. Rather, it belongs together, and there's a larger canonical and church setting for these things. Historical grammatical method has been the method that evangelicals have tended to emphasize. Very often in... Um, response to the challenge of higher criticism and the lower criticism, we don't usually use the word lower criticism that much, but of textual criticism, considering how the texts, the different forms of the text 
and how certain things were um, speculating concerning the original form of the text, that sort of thing. Now, when we're talking about higher criticism, evangelical responses have often emphasized the original intention of the author. They've emphasized a single meaning of the text, that we're not having speculation concerning multiple meanings, where I maybe see one thing in the text and you see another, and both of those meanings are quite legitimate. It's a sort of reader-response theory approach to the text. Evangelicals have emphasized a single meaning, that God is communicating to us, and he's communicating in, to us in a way that actually communicates. It's not just a matter of us seeing in the text some impressions that we might have. There's also an emphasis upon often inductive reading, observation of the text, interpretation, and then application. That stage of application is very strongly emphasized. And so often people will talk about the meaning of the text, which is reading the text in its historical, grammatical context, thinking about what those words would have meant as the original author penned them, and as the original hearers heard them, and then thinking, from that meaning, what significance can we draw? How can we apply those meanings to our particular situation and context? There's a weighting then of application. The typological reading of the text has often been something that's fallen a bit to the wayside within historical grammatical approaches. But there's no reason to put them at odds with each other. Typology can be a way in which we work out the historical grammatical reading of the text. We're understanding the way that these texts functioned and were heard in their original context, the way that the authors meant them to be heard and understood. So if we're reading through the Gospels, we'll often see the authors using telling stories in particular ways that bring to mind stories from the Old Testament, that bring to mind other aspects of their own story. So if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, you'll see in the central section there's a travel log where Jesus is following the prophetic path down to Jerusalem. And as you follow him on that path, you'll see that there is a sort of symmetry on both sides. So there are two questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then, for instance, there's a man who's on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, caught among thieves, he's by the side of the road, and he needs mercy. There are people passing by. Later on, you see Jesus reaching Jericho on the path towards Jerusalem, and there's a blind man by the side of the road calling for mercy, and people are passing by. There's a symmetry there, and the author of the Gospel, Luke, wanted us, I believe, to see that symmetry. There are many other occasions within the Gospel where we see these sorts of things, those details. Even when we're looking at the story of Genesis, we saw key details of the story that maybe made you think a bit more about there's something going on here. Why mention the goat? We've seen goats already in the story of Genesis. Why mention the um, staff and the signet as signs of authority? What is going on there? And details of Tamar. Why, why is this character called Tamar? We know of another Tamar in Scripture, and there seem to be similarities between the two stories. Why is that? taking place. And so when you read these stories, often you'll find that the authors themselves are clearly working beyond just the surface meaning of the text. They're wanting you to recognize deeper patterns, and that's part of the historical grammatical meaning of the text itself. People often talk about typology along with allegory. You can think about symbolism 
as something that, if we think about the cross, for instance, the cross is a symbol. When you see the cross, it can be a thing that is specifically referring to the cross on which Jesus died. And maybe it's pointing to that specific cross, that specific piece of wood. But yet, it never is just pointing to that. As it points to that specific piece of wood, it's also pointing to the meaning of what happened on that particular piece of wood. It's pointing to that piece of wood and what happened upon that piece of wood as a symbol for the entirety of our faith, as a symbol of Christ, as a symbol of all the things that hold us, the truth that we are held by. And so the cross is a symbol. In many ways, when we're reading the story of Scripture, we'll encounter throughout it symbols, things that represent broader, deeper, higher realities that cannot just be reduced to a specific referent within history and within the text. And so when you're reading about the promised land, for instance, you're not just hearing about the promised land. There's a symbol there. There's a symbolic aspect that draws your mind towards the new heavens and the new earth. It draws your mind forward to what Christ will do. As Joshua brings the people into the promised land, so the new Joshua, Jesus, will bring the people into the new heavens and the new earth. And so there are ways in which these texts have symbolic dimensions that draw out fuller realities. Now that's how we encounter texts in general. It's how we encounter realities. Things symbolize things beyond themselves. Now when you're doing allegory, many people think of allegory as a reading of the text that sees within the text, uh, that imposes upon the text connections with external realities. So you read the story of Exodus as a story of a sort of platonic movement out of um, a certain experience of spiritual darkness through meditation and all these sorts of things into a deeper understanding of God's work. Now, that movement to enlightenment may be a genuine one, but I don't think it's what the story of Exodus is primarily talking about. There is a symbolism there, but we don't want to short-circuit that. We don't want to just impose upon the text. Rather, symbolism should be something that emerges from the text itself as we trace its path as it moves through. And I believe as we explore some of the themes of typology in the next few days, in tomorrow, we'll see how that works. That typology, at its best, is tracing the itinerary of the text as it moves us towards the deeper meanings. People have talked about the fourfold meaning of the text, or the quadriga. The literal, the anagogic, the typological or allegorical, or the tropological meaning of the text. So the, starting from the end, the tropological meaning of the text is the moral of the story. This is what we learn from for Christian ethics. It's how we can gain something in that respect. The typological, the allegorical, is something that points towards maybe... Um, the salvation of the New Testament in the Old. Often, typology is seen primarily as working between the two Testaments. Now, I would argue that we see typology throughout the Old Testament itself. When you're reading the story of David, read the story of David against the background of the story of Jacob, because their stories are very similar. Jacob goes to the house of Laban, and he escapes from the house of Laban at the time of sheep shearing, and he meets, goes towards his brother Esau, 
And Esau is coming after him, with four, coming towards him with 400 men. And he sends out a wave of gifts to pacify his brother. And they meet up and they meet in peace. If you read the story of David, David goes to the house of, it, he interacts with Nabal. What is Nabal? Turn Nabal the other way around, and what do you get? In both Hebrew and English, you get Laban. And he goes to there, and he's dealing with Laban. It's around the time of sheep shearing. Again, not an accident. And as you read that story, you'll notice other details. David comes to attack Nabal with 400 men. Abigail sends out waves of gifts to pacify him, to restore him to his Jacobness, as it were. There is not an accident there. The story is a typological one, and it's typology within the Old Testament, not just between old and new. And so you have the typological or allegorical meaning of the text, the anagogic meaning of the text. When we think about that sort of reading, it's a more vertical way of thinking about things. So if you're reading the book of Hebrews, there's a lot of that in there, that when we're thinking about the earthly tabernacle, it's pointing towards a heavenly tabernacle. And that meaning of the text is often expressed in terms of individual eschatology, what it means to enter into the realm of God's presence, what it means to um, receive, um, go to heaven, these sorts of things. Those themes read within the context of the text. And then there's the literal meaning, the meaning of the text that is very much the more connected with the surface meaning, the more initial meaning of the text within its more immediate context. Now, as we work through those, we'll find that those categories have their limitations. It may not be the neatest way to speak about things, but they can be often very helpful. They point out certain things that maybe we should be looking towards, certain things that we should notice. So maybe the anagogic is recognizing a vertical relationship between higher realities and lower realities. There is an escalation of these things in history. So when Abraham is going to the promised land, he recognizes that the promised land is not just a patch of earth in the Middle East. It represents a greater homeland that he's being promised. And so it's a sign, it's a symbol of something greater. And in that sense, there's an anagogic meaning. We might think also of that vertical meaning as something that is very much explored within the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned. Typological explores maybe more horizontal connections as these things move out over history, and we see in the story of the Exodus, for instance, some anticipations of the story of Christ and his deliverance of his people. Other things we might see in the literal meaning, the literal meaning is following the text step by step, and not rushing ahead or reading back into the text or trying to abstract up from the text into something higher, but recognizing that that text needs to be read in a way that tarries with it and is patient with it that reads it on its own terms and not just on the terms of other texts. And the tropological sense is considering what this means for us today. That if it does not actually yield some fruit for us, maybe we're not reading it well. The emphasis that evangelicals have had upon the application of the text is important. I believe evangelicals have often overstated that. And so we're rushing to the application. And the only meaning of the text that really matters is that which remains within our leaky bucket as we're moving the water of meaning to the um, realm of application, and all the stuff that drains out along the way isn't that important. But actually, part of the point of reading Scripture is to meditate upon God's truth, 
meditate upon who God is, what he does, the glory of his word, the glory of his revelation of himself, and his patterns within history. Scripture is like a piece of music in many ways. There's a, a beauty to it as you hear it and follow its movements. But if you're so rushing to find what's the payoff, you'll miss a lot of that. And often that rush to application prevents us from hearing so much that the text has for us. So I want us to maybe slow down a bit, spend more time with the literal meaning of the text, and then following that literal pace through to the typological, and then as we move on through that, maybe we'll arrive at a far richer application than we would have done otherwise. I hope to show some of that tomorrow. There is a breach, I think, within the modern world between the depicted biblical world and the real historical world. Hans Fry has talked about this. When we think about Scripture, we think about Scripture as this sort of narrative about the history, and we're trying to get behind the text of Scripture to find what it bore witness to. And the importance, however, of the historical sense of the text can often be lost in the process. Scripture is history in many parts. We have poetry and we have prophecy and these other things as well, epistolary literature. But it is history, primarily. And yet, it's not bare history. The way that the story is told is important, not just the story that is told. And so, we can often try and breach the gap between history and our lives, as we've created this breach between the modern world, that breach between fact and meaning, that breach between history and application, that breach between Israel and the church and our lives here and now, that breach is one that can be very hard to bridge. So we think in terms of analogies or spiritualization or application and a certain sort of piety that resists the historicism that we experience within the modern world. But I suggest we are best thinking of Scripture as witness. Scripture is a way of telling history that draws our attention to specific truths and aspects of that that are revelatory. So as we talked about the example of the temptations of Christ, the differences between those accounts draw our attention to different facets of Christ's ministry, different facets of who Christ is as a person. Typology is also something that connects us with the previous story. As we think about the way that we worship, as we were thinking about that earlier today, this evening, as we're worshipping together, typology informs a particular way of worshipping. We are entering into the text. So the text is not just something out there that we think for of finding parallels with our lives or some sort of analogy. The text is a world that we are invited into, and invited into primarily within the context of worship. It becomes our world too. It becomes the way that we, our world becomes storied by the world of Scripture. And as our world is storied by the world of Scripture, we start to have a new way of imagining our situation. We start to think of ourselves differently, what it means to be the church differently. And typology, I think, enables us to draw that connection between the life of the people of God and the revelation of Scripture. We read scripture not just as a text for them back then, but as the heirs and the executors of the biblical narrative. God has given us this word as our word. 
This is a book, this is a word that, as it were, looks us directly in the eye and speaks to us in our situation. As Paul could talk about in 1 Corinthians 10, all of these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. This is our book. It's written by God for our instruction. And typology, I believe, helps us to do that, moving faithfully, following the movement of the text itself. So the life-giving water of the text flows from its source all the way to its end. One way I've thought about this is, imagine following a path. As you're walking along that path, you're focusing upon the steps that you're taking directly in front of you. Maybe at points, through the canopy of trees above you, you can see a big, great mountain peak in the distance. And you're working towards that peak. And at points, you can see it, and at other points, it's shrouded. Maybe in clouds, or maybe there are rocks or trees obscuring your view. You follow that path through rocky terrain, through forest, and through um, all these different sorts of um, ground, and you find yourself at the foot of this mighty mountain. As you follow your path up that mountain, following the foot, tracing the footholds, and going along the itinerary that you've been set, that path that you're following, you reach the top of that mountain, and before you spreads out the entire itinerary, the entire path that you have just walked, as a single, undivided unity. So no longer are you just seeing that specific part of the path just ahead of you, and maybe glimpses of that peak that you're working towards, your destiny. You're seeing the entire unity of the path that you have walked from above. Now, when we're reading scripture, it can often be like that. When we're thinking about what it means to read as Christians, we're not just following the path immediately in front of us, which can often be like the literal meaning of the text. And that's an important thing to do. If you don't follow the path step by step, you won't actually understand it well. There's a way of understanding the text that comes with the literal meaning. You can't just be airlifted to the peak and see everything as you would do if you followed the path through. And then as you follow the path through, at many points you'll be able to look back on path points that you've walked previously and see earlier parts of the path and how they connect with the path that you're just walking at the moment in time. And that's as typology traces that horizontal movement you can think about um, the anagogical meaning of the text as we can see that greater peak that everything is ordered towards, that peak that Christ brings us towards. And then as you ascend that, everything else is seen as leading to that point, belonging to that path that belongs to that one place that you're standing upon, upon Christ. Christ is the unity of the entire itinerary of the Scriptures. Now, in the story of, in the text of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, Paul talks very much about this. This experience of Moses and his veiled face. He talks about the Corinthian Christians as epistles written by the Spirit of God on hearts, not on tablets of stone. Now, the Old Covenant was written upon tablets of stone. The law of Moses was written upon the tablets that were taken down from Mount Sinai, but yet God has written his new law, his new covenant law, upon human hearts. And he talks about the experience of Moses who came down after meeting with God and speaking with God face to face as a man speaks to his friend, coming down and having to veil his face because the people could not look at the glory 
that was the true end of the covenant. And why is he saying that? One of the things he's saying is that the true purpose of all of this was glorification, transformed humanity. That was the point of the word all the way through. The law was not primarily about having a revelation of God's truth just on some tablet of stone out there in the midst of the people in the box in a tent. It was about that law being written upon human hearts, hearts of people that had been transformed by that truth. We talked earlier about the movement of our relationship with the text from priests, where it's do this, don't do that, that instruction, and then to the king who learns, whose eye has been trained, and can judge, and he can discern what is good and evil. He can discern when it is the time for something, when it is not the time. To the prophet whose word, who bears that word within himself and then speaks that word forth like fire. God has written his word on the hearts of new covenant Christians. And the whole purpose is that we might be a transformed humanity. Now he talks about Moses having that veil over his face. And yet, when Israel, and when Israel reads the words of Moses, there is a veil over Moses there too. Not just Moses the man, the man who bears the glory of God upon his countenance as a reflection, but Moses, the books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As they see those books, the glory of those is veiled. They're just seeing, as it were, the steps in front of them on this dusty path. They're not seeing the glorious vista stretched out as a single unity. And yet in Christ, the veil is removed. In Christ, who is the glory of God, we see what the end always was. This was always what it was about. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God is at the heart of the scriptures. Now, this series was intended to focus upon the theme of transfiguration. And I'm sorry, I'm going to let you down on that front because I realized it's Pentecost this weekend and we can't let that pass without reflection at length upon what Pentecost means and how Pentecost relates to these things. But think just at this point about the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Christ as the key to the whole of the scriptures. That mountain, as it were, that mountain on which we stand is the Mount of Transfiguration the mount where Christ's glory is seen, and the whole of the covenant history is laid out before us. And we see that it's all led to this point. All these events in the Old Testament where God revealed his glory in Theophanes, and yet people didn't actually see more than the body, for instance. We see the train of the robe filling the temple in the vision of Isaiah in chapter 6. We see Ezekiel describing in this really circumlocutory language this Appearance as of a man and all these sorts of things. He's trying to grasp on something that's an experience that's so slippery, so beyond words that he can't quite capture it within the words that he has to hand. We see it in the experience of Moses as he sees the back of God. And yet, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not a reflection, but the glory of God shining forth. And this helps us to read the story of the entirety of the scripture as something leading up to this point. Not a story that leaves us wondering how it all fits together, but a story that exhibits a beautiful and glorious unity that discloses who God is. A God that is discovered in a prophet from Nazareth. A prophet who walks towards his death in Jerusalem. 
And before he sets out on that journey, he stands on a great mountain. And on the top of that mountain, his face is transfigured. And people see, just a few select disciples, who that person really is as he embarks upon that journey that will define everything that follows. This is the story that we are part of now. As Peter could say in his second epistle, we saw the glory on the heavenly mount. We have seen an anticipation of the second coming. We know that the king has been unveiled and we're just waiting for the kingdom to come in his train. That expectation is a foreshadowing of what will happen in the future. Baptism as well and the sacraments are a way that we enter into this story. It's a way that this story is reminded, we're reminded that the story is our story. When you think about the meaning of baptism, it can easily be something that's lost in just um, some sort of doctrines about baptism. That baptism is about forgiveness, it's about a statement of sonship, it's about something that um, represents union, these sorts of things. All of those things are true. But it's also entrance into the story of the Red Sea crossing, entrance into the passage through the waters of the flood. It's being drawn out of the waters on the third day of creation, the land taken from the sea. It's being the people who struggle with the angel on the banks of the Jabbok and the ford of the Jabbok. It's people who are exchanging the ministry of Elijah to the ministry of Elisha at the banks of the Jordan or the ministry of Joshua, Moses to Joshua at the same place. It's the story of the priests being baptized for service. We are entering into a story that has gone all the way back to the beginning of creation. This is our story. As we see the one at the heart of it, Christ, the glorified Son of God, we are seeing someone whose glory we should reflect as we enter into that story, as that story, as his story becomes ours. And baptism is ultimately about our entrance into Christ's story. Christ is one who had three baptisms. The baptism in the Jordan as he's anointed for ministry, as his sonship is declared, and the baptism of his death as he entered down into the depths of Sheol and struggled with Satan and rose up again on the third day. And then his baptism of the church at Pentecost as he pours out his spirit upon them. We enter into each one of those baptisms as his story becomes our story. And we celebrate the memory of the people of God, this story in the Lord's Supper, whenever we celebrate it. We recall what he has done, and what he has done as the fulfillment of the story of the Passover, of the story of Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine to Abraham after the defeat of the kings, of the Lady Wisdom inviting people in to enjoy her feast of bread and wine. This is our story. It's the story of Christ. And it's the story of God's glory being made known in human history. Thank you very much. We have time for questions now. And not that much time, but we might have time afterwards as well. Do you have any book recommendations that would help get you a little bit more into this way of thinking? James Jordan, Through New Eyes, is perhaps the best book to read on the subject. Um, he has a way of reading scripture that really transformed my understanding of the text. He taught me not so much what a particular set of what a particular set of um, chapters of scripture mean, but how to read scripture more generally. Um, and I've found no one so helpful as he. Um, Peter Lighthart's material as well, House for My Name, um, things like Deep Exegesis, 
And yeah, I'll start with those. I normally hear uh, literal reading of the text and typological readings sort of as being at odds. Yep. Uh, and that surprised me to have you kind of marry them together. So I'm really curious, what liter when you say literal reading of the text, what does that really mean? Well, people use that in different senses. Some use literal in terms of just the concrete meaning of the text, or, or to say that it would only refer to concrete things, um, that there shouldn't be a symbolic aspect to it, for instance. Literal, in some other people's terminology, refers to the literary meaning of the text, how it works. as, And so there are literal meanings of the text that are according to grammatical historical exegesis that may be typological. So it's recognizing that a text can tell a story in a way that's designed to bear faithful witness to historical events, but also in a way that's designed to draw your attention to other details of the background. And I think we have a lot of examples like that in scripture that maybe bridge that divide between literal and typological. So the typological is not something that is opposed to or an alternative to the literal reading, but rather at its best it should arise out of the literal meaning. Now, to explain how that exactly happens, when we're reading the story of um, Genesis 38, we arrive at a typological reading by paying closer attention to the text and the details of the text. The typological reading should not be something that we bring to the text in terms of our theories of um, Christian formation or our philosophies of um, our philosophies of spiritual enlightenment. Rather, it's something that arises from paying attention to details like um, the death of two sons and then that third son that's waiting to be given. Pay attention to that detail, follow it through. That will reveal something of a typological meaning as you trace that through the text of Genesis. Likewise, the kid. What's the kid doing there? Or the, or the staff. Later on in the book of Genesis, we have the blessing of Judah. The scepter shall not pass from Judah. He's lost his staff earlier on. How does that connect? And so following those details through, we arrive at something that goes beyond the surface meaning of the text, but is elicited by attention to that surface meaning. And so in that respect, I don't see these two things at odds with each other. Rather, one completes the other and really leads it into a deeper... I mean, that's the way that the author of Genesis is writing. He wants us to notice these things, I think. Uh, just finished a long series on the story of the family of Abraham, taking um, the story from Genesis chapter 11 to chapter 50 and looking through and seeing some of the parallels. So you're reading the story of the brothers going from Egypt and they've got the, they're pursued by um, the men of Joseph and they say that they've taken the cup of divination and they search through all the people's bags from the oldest to the youngest, and the find from Benjamin's bag. And there's been a death sentence declared upon the person whose possession will be found. Now, we've read that story, something similar to that story before. The teraphim, instruments of divination, have been taken from the house of Laban. There's a death sentence declared, and the person in whose possession they'll be found will be put to death. And so it's a familiar pattern of story. And if you're just reading the story by itself, I don't think you're reading the story well, because the story invites you to connect those two events and see what happens to Rachel, happens to the son 
that she has. Um, and as you connect those stories, a deeper meaning starts to emerge, a meaning that is very closely um, written within the text itself, but is not the surface immediate meaning that you might have if you just focused upon the specific details abstracted from context. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. So uh, I'm wondering about, kind of going in a mental tangent, thinking about priest, prophet, and God's word. So it's an application of a prophet, in that point of a prophetic, I don't want to use that phrase, but that's kind of loaded, but reading uh, old events in view of the, the structure of events in the Bible, or events in your own life, or other kinds of things. Is that a reasonable thing of a prophet if he's so internalized God's pattern of doing things that he could read his own story or the story of his nation or the world or whatever else? I think there is something of that to it. And in some ways, that is one of the tasks of faithful preaching, to take that text and to speak with the faithful voice of that text to the specific situation in which your congregation find themselves. And that is an internalization of the text, where the, the preacher is voicing the text faithfully. And that is a huge challenge to develop that voice, and many people rush to it and do not have it, clearly. But I think, yes, and that's something that we should develop for ourselves, that we should be able to think about our situations in terms of biblical categories as we internalize these structures. So is that an interfere kind which texts and which stories are resonating with our situation? I mean, that's that part of it, discerning which is the relevant text. Um, we might think about, for instance, we can tell the Exodus story. Do we think about ourselves as um, who, which characters are we within the story? Are we the reluctant Israelites? Are we Moses and Aaron? Are we Pharaoh? Are we Pharaoh's servants? Are we the magicians? Are we myriad? Who are we? Those sorts of questions require a certain degree of discernment. And often we'll find that we're many of those different characters in different ways. And it's, again, it's like listening to a piece of music, that you need to recognize the way that there are certain ways in which you can trace the structure of a piece of music and recognize how it's exploring a particular motif or theme. Um, but that takes a trained ear, and it's not something that you can... People who rush to that will often make a mess of it. In some ways, it's both, because what we see within the New Testament is very much the escalation of Old Testament realities to a higher plane, but yet something in continuity with that. So maybe think in terms of when you're walking in a spiral staircase, at any point you're above a point that you were on previously, and you've been making progress, you're moving forward, as it were, but you're also moving up, and there are parallels between the higher place and the lower place, but there's also a progression that we follow. And when we're thinking about, for instance, the themes of tabernacle in the book of Hebrews, there are ways in which we see a sequence of different houses of God being developed. We see Eden as a sort of sanctuary of God. We see the tabernacle. We see the temple. We see the Davidic tabernacle. And we see the temple of Solomon, then the later post-exilic temple, we see those things leading up to Christ and Christ and his body um, 
And so there's a progression through time, but there's also a progression upwards, as in Christ we're seeing the higher temple, the temple of the heavenlies. I would, this is some of the areas in which I find that fourfold um, interpretation, it can be a bit clumsy, it may not be the most helpful at points. And so there's a certain heuristic value to it, it may not be more than that at points. Uh, you were talking about how um, the Bible has taken on different forms over time. Could you comment at all on how it looks at Having the Bible like that, and the way you've described it, how has that affected our physiology? Yeah. You can maybe think about the modern Bible as doing many of the things that the church would once have done. So the modern Bible binds together all the books in one. And the church and its liturgy would formerly have been that primary form of binding. The Bible is also, I mean, it's produced by publishing houses, things like that, and it's produced on printing presses, whereas previously it would have been produced within the life of Christian communities, and the scribes would have copied it out. It would have been a religious task um, to spread the book. But that development is one that's occurred before the development of the printing press. We moved to secular scriptoria. Scriptoria was something that happened in the Middle Ages, or in the medieval period. Then the text is also something that has a sort of genealogy within the life of the church. It also symbolizes the church's bond with the text. So traditionally in many churches there would be, for instance, the processing of the Bible into the church. Um, why did they do that? In part because it represents the presence of the Word of God within the church. That the church is, I mean, we are, again, it's like a group of Shakespearean actors. Hamlet finds its home primarily within the performance on the stage. Now, there may be texts that enable them to perform that, the scripts that they're studying in their free time, but the text primarily finds its life within their life as a community. And the way that scripture talks about scripture as something that's being written onto the life of the people of God, written onto our hearts by the Spirit, and present within our midst by that Spirit, I think is exploring something similar to that, that we are, we are the writing of God, and, or he is writing his word into us. And so the book is intended to be born within us, ultimately. Now, that takes a lot of learning the words, and we forget a lot of the words along the way. And we are called to, in, to some degree, to improvise, to develop things in a way that's faithful to what God has given us. But doing that requires making this text so deeply part of us that we can speak and act faithfully from out of its world. And that is, again, something that I think is harder for us imaginatively to capture with the modern form of the text, which can often, I suppose, constrain our imagination of what it means. I think if we have a more um, historic form of the text, maybe we'll find it easier to imagine how it might be different. If you look at many of these old Bibles, I'm just, they are works of art. I had the privilege in, during my time in Durham of handling Bibles that were over a thousand years old. And these texts are incredibly intricate and brilliant works of art. And 
there's also a recognition as you're looking through this that this belonged to a very specific community. It symbolized their relationship between the relationship between them and the Word of God. It bound that text up within their life. And we've maybe lost that. We don't produce church Bibles anymore in the same way. We have great big Bibles sometimes, but they don't have the same relationship with the church and a historic Bible might. Now there's a different way that we can relate to material things. I mean, I enjoy knitting, and there's a different way that you relate to something that has been created by hand. Um, if someone has created a dress or someone has knit something, there is a different way of relating to that than something you've just bought at a store. It's a sense that that communicates presence. And in the same way, Scripture is a means of communicating God's presence to us. And so the more that we think of the Bible as a mass-produced object, a generic object, we lose a sense of what it represents as God's presence, of his voice in our midst. And that that voice is that which animates everything about what we do. That that voice should resound within our company as we apprentice ourselves to it and we become a faithful troop of actors, as it were, seeking to live out its, its work. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.